All right. Well, last week we uh, talked about what sin is, and what do you remember from last week? We talked about last week. Josh. Okay. So from that, we understand that sin must be done by someone who has knowledge or understanding of right and wrong. Okay. What scripture could you give me to to support that? That sin must be done by someone who has knowledge or understanding of right and wrong. And of John nine. Okay. Yeah, if you are blind, you would have no sin, Jesus said. But since you say you see, your sin remains. Yeah, so the blindness negates sinfulness, you know, or a lack of knowledge. Because people who are blind have lack of knowledge. They don't have the knowledge they would have otherwise if they could see. What else? Malachi? Um, Jesus was tempted just like um, us. Yes, Jesus was tempted in all points. Just like we were, yet without sin. And he came, was made just like his brethren in all respects. And so we see that the same flesh Jesus came in, the same flesh we're in. And since Jesus wasn't sinful, that must tell us the flesh in and of itself cannot be sinful. We saw in Romans 6, what is the flesh? It's an instrument that can be used for righteousness or unrighteousness, but it must be presented by that person for one of those two things. <clears throat> so there's a free will choice involved in that. What else? We saw that uh, the word sarks for flesh, if they're going to be consistent with using it as sinful nature, then you'd have to use it that way. And first John applied to Jesus, mm -hmm. and you would have had that sinful nature. Right. Became in the flesh, became in the sinful nature. Right. And the word sarks doesn't even mean nature. There's other words in the Greek that mean nature, like we looked at Ephesians 2 a few weeks back. This is fusis, which means nature, okay? which can mean either what you're, the way you're born, or it can mean a practice you've, you've developed over time. Yes, Josh? There's no connotation for it at all. It talks about your flesh, your body, uh, and we'll talk about uh, Sarks a little bit more today, or the way Paul used it in Romans 7. Sarks is just physicality. Yeah, Sarks is just physicality. Yes. It's the, it's, but it, it can be the way you're using your physicality as well, which is what we'll see today. Talk about today some. What else? Anything? Right. So the third option. So if someone says, well, if you're saying babies aren't sinners, you're saying they're righteous. That's called a false dilemma or a false dichotomy. Die is two. So dichotomy, dilemma. They're giving you a false dichotomy or a false dilemma because they're only giving you two options when really there's a third option, which is innocence. Now, when do we become sinners, according to the Bible? When we're youth. Youth, that's right. Very good, Seth. So when you become a youth, you become a sinner by choice, not by necessity. No one's forcing you to become a sinner at your youth, but that's when you come to this age of understanding, knowledge. 
you begin to see things properly in regards to sin and what God requires of you. And so, yes, Brother John. Yes. Yes. Bar and bat mitzvah. Yes. Bat is for means daughter. Bar means son. Uh, you know, we see in the New Testament even we see a guy was called Bar Jesus, or or Simon was called uh, what's his father Bar Jonah. That means son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. So Bar means son. Bat means daughter. And for women, for girls, it was thir- for twelve, and for boys, it was thirteen, because of the way they matured differently. It's not because they're smart, just because they mature a little differently. Although I will say, I will say that it does seem like young men at that age seem to have a little bit of brain damage sometimes. <laughs> but uh, I speak from experience on that. But um, yes, yeah, so we talked about bar and bat mitzvah, and uh, we also saw that people corrupt themselves, pervert themselves. They go astray, which means they weren't that way at some point in time. Okay. Anything else you want to mention from last week? That was week before. Yep. Yep, that was the fall of mankind week before. Yep. Right. Corrupt, pervert. Genesis 6.12. <clears throat> Corrupting, perverting. We talked about Isaiah 53.6, going astray. You know, so there's a, a, thing, a point in time where people go astray. They become corrupt, they become perverted, but they weren't that way to start out with. And whatever you are when you're born, who's doing is it? God's doing. Whatever you are when you're born, whether you have five fingers on each hand or five toes on each foot or whether you have six or seven or whether you're missing a leg or an arm, it's God's doing. And so if you're a sinner at birth, whose fault is it? It would be God's fault. Yes. Okay, today we're going to talk about Romans 7, uh, specifically focusing on 14 through 25. And this is a very crucial passage in the Christian life. You have to get this passage down. If you don't get this passage down, you'll be subject to all kinds of false teaching and false doctrine. You might be led astray and deceived by the devil to think that you have to keep on sinning or struggling with sin every day of your life from here on out. You may think that Romans seven fourteen to 25 is the normal Christian life if you're deceived by misunderstanding this, this passage. And so what I want to start out with first is I want to read, I want to do what people do. They'll take just these 12 verses, okay, 14 through 25, they'll isolate them from their immediate context, and from that they'll try to prove their doctrine of what they think it's saying. Okay? So I'm going to read Romans 7, 14 through 25, and the first thing I'm going to do after that is show you there's only three possible options for this. Okay? And then I'm going to show you which option throughout this teaching is the actual option we must choose. So let's start in verse 14. This is Paul speaking here. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do not, 
I do what I will not to do. It is no longer I who do it, but, that, but sin that dwells in me. I find that a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, and with the flesh the law of sin. And Father, I just ask you to just uh, be in our midst, Lord. Uh, bring understanding. Bring clarity, Father. Uh, help us to understand your word as you have preserved it and written down through holy men of old. Uh, make this so clear, Lord. Not only to us who are present here, but those who are listening through video. Make it clear, Lord, what you're really saying here through the Apostle Paul. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we have here uh, three typical interpretation of this passage. One is that this is the normal Christian life. Uh, that every day of your life, from here on out, you're going to, the word struggle, struggle with sin. And that what you want to do, you won't do, and you'll hate yourself for doing it. And, and what you really don't want to do, that is what you will do the rest of your life. That's one common, that's the most common Unfortunately, the most common interpretation of this passage in modern day, what I would call churchianity or Christianity, okay, most prevalent one. Uh, the second one would be that this is uh, an, uh, an unbeliever, and he's struggling as he realizes the conviction of sin, and uh, he's not a Christian yet, but he's on his way to becoming a Christian, okay. And really, those are really the two main views. The third view is kind of an offshoot of the other two, but those are the two main views. It's a Christian, and this is the normal life of a Christian. And number two, uh, that this is a non-Christian. Now, the other, the third one is kind of similar to the first one, that this is a guy who's a Christian, who's a carnal Christian. You know, there's different levels of Christianity. He's a carnal Christian. There's also holy Christians, and there's carnal Christians. So this guy's a carnal Christian, but that's a very small percentage of people who hold to that view. Most hold to the first view. So what I want to do, and, and people will say uh, within the first year, this is the Apostle Paul talking about himself, okay, in his present state while he's writing the book of Romans, okay? So I want to uh, go through some scriptures of uh, what the Apostle Paul says about himself. Before I get to that, let's go to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, because this, this verse is usually used in conjunction with the interpretation of Romans 7, 14-25, that this is the Apostle Paul speaking about himself as a Christian. He can't do what he wants to do, which is live holy, and what he doesn't want to do, which is be, be a sinner, is what he hates to do, and he is doing it, and he can't help it, because the sin that dwells in him that's making him do these things. Okay, But 1 Timothy one fifteen, which is always used in conjunction with that interpretation, says, this is Paul speaking, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Okay? Now keep in mind, the people who use this interpretation of Romans 7, that says it's the Apostle Paul currently as a Christian living in sin, uh, they, they rightly say that most of what is most of the verbs in Romans 7, 14-25 are in the present tense. They rightly say that. And, and where it says here, I am chief, he, he's speaking, uh, he, that's in the present tense as well. Uh, but remember, we must use it in context with the rest of the, of the verse. So let's just interpret 1 Timothy 1.15 in light of his context. Go to verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1. It says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, 
who has enabled me, because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly, is that word formerly? I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Okay? But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And then we go on to verse 15. This is a faithful saying that worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, whom I am the chief. So he's been saved. He, he's speaking of his past life, what he did. The reason why he's calling himself the chief of sinners, and the word chief there, if you look at the Greek word, there's never in the, in the lexicon, never at, uh, the word chief there. That's kind of like the King James, I think King James says chief as well. Is that what it says, brother? I, I think that's the new King James translators trying to maintain some of the language of the King James as the new King James translation. They're trying to maintain some of that. But the word chief there means, it could mean first as far as an order. Okay. Uh, as far as succession of events, it could mean first. So he could be talking about, I was the first person to persecute the church. Maybe he's talking about that. It can mean foremost, uh, most prominent, earliest, or earlier. Okay? So, either way, I mean, we could, we, it could be interpreted that I am the chief of sinners because of what my former conduct was like. I was so wicked, I persecuted the church of God. And remember what he said on Damascus Road. What did Jesus say to Paul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right, because the body of Christ is Christ's body. And so what you do to the body of Christ, you also do to Christ himself. Remember, we talked about Matthew 25, where go to visit our brothers in, in prison. We're doing that to Christ, he said, about himself. And he will judge you according to how you treat him, who is the church, who is who are his brethren. Okay, so obviously in 1 Timothy 1.15, he's referring back to his present life. Remember, when it comes to your sin, your past sin, has it been tossed into the sea of forgetfulness in the sense that God doesn't know about it anymore? God, God hasn't lost his memory. He hasn't forgotten anything in that sense. He's simply not holding it against you any longer. So I could say, uh, maybe not to the extent that Paul can, that I am a wicked sinner speaking of my past life, but speaking in the present tense because it's still on my record. It's still on my record. And so I still loathe it. I still loathe the way I used to be. I still loathe all the things that I did in the past. And I, I'm sure you could say the same thing. And so, but he's, he's thinking upon his past life. Remember in verse 13, I formerly, that's past, that's past tense. So for people to say that Paul is writing 1 Timothy and he's still the chief of sinners presently is to say that he's still persecuting the church. He's still a blasphemer and he's still an insolent man. But we know that's not true of Paul. He didn't continue to do those things. He didn't continue to do those things. In fact, the church was very reluctant to accept him at first, remember? But then they did accept him, realizing he had changed. He no longer was that persecutor of the church. Okay? So we see that that, that is not a proper use of 1 Timothy 1.15. Now let's go to some other verses here where Paul talks about himself as a Christian. Go to Acts 23. And let's see if these, this testimony of Paul as a Christian is, goes along with this interpretation of Romans 7, 14-25 that is speaking of Paul in the present tense that what he wants to do, he can't do, and what he hates to do, he is doing, 
Let's see if it goes along with that. Uh, Acts 23 and verse 1. And Paul looked earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Does that seem like it comports with Romans 7, 14 through 25? If that's talking about Paul in the present tense? Or he's lying here to these men. Okay? <clears throat> and then we have Acts 24, verses 15 and 16. Speaking before Felix now. <clears throat> he says, I have hope in God. This is verse 15. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, talking about the Jews, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, does that go along with that interpretation of Romans 7? This always striving to have a conscience void of offense, without offense, before God and men? I don't think so. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, is, is, is Paul prideful in saying these things? So to tell the truth about yourself, if you're living a holy life, to tell the truth about yourself, is it prideful? Okay, so if you're keeping the commandments of God and you actually say that, that wouldn't by definition be prideful, unless, of course, you're lying. Yes? Oh, he's striving to have a conscience. Well, I mean, but it says in Romans 7 that he has no, no ability to do that. I mean, if we read through Romans 7 again, he has no ability to do that. So, how could it, why would he even, he wouldn't even have the ability to strive. He has no ability to do that, according to Romans 7. So, we'll get back to that here in a minute. 1 Corinthians 4, but they could say that. You're right, they could say that. 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse, starting in verse 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. So he's he's blessing those who revile him. He's enduring throughout persecution. And so these are things that you wouldn't expect someone to, to say, who's saying, well, the things I want to do, I can't do, the things I... I I do do, I don't want to do, I hate these things I do. You wouldn't expect them to say, I'm enduring through persecution. I'm blessing those who are reviling me. Those are really high up things for someone to do. Oftentimes I'll have someone tell me on, on a video, um, you know, just understanding their own place in their, in the faith. They couldn't do those things because if someone were to do the things that happened to us in the open air, they would respond in like kind. So it takes, a level of sanctification to get to, to be able to say, listen, I can stand and let someone punch me in the face and I'm not going to respond back and punch them in the face. And you need to understand where you are in that sense in the faith, that you need to build up yourself in the faith so when that does come, that time does come, you're ready to endure those kind of things. You know, we talked about this before. We talked about going to to the streets, the highways, the byways, the hedges, and compelling people to come in, witnessing the people, enduring that little bit of persecution, a little bit of suffering, that little bit of affliction from the world, so that when the worst things come, you're ready for those things. And so oftentimes people will say that on videos. They'll say, well, I don't know how you endure. I wouldn't build." So they're understanding where they are in life and the need to grow in that area so they can go to the streets and be able to... I mean, it wasn't like a, I, the first time I went out and preached, I endured those kind of things. Those things God brought me along through time, slowly but surely, 
because he knew what I could handle that point in time and what I couldn't handle that point in time and how I probably would have responded at that point in time. So you wouldn't expect someone who's in the Romans 7 state to say these kind of things. Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians 11. 1. It says, uh, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, how, how is that possible, Paul? You, you can't imitate Christ. You're just a sinner, Paul. You sin every single day. Uh, but if you're imitating Christ, did Christ sin every single day? Christ didn't sin at all. So he's even telling them, look at my example here. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And we should all be able to say that. You know, follow me as I follow Christ. So if someone looks up to you in the faith, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we want to point them to Christ. But we should be able to say, yes, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. But the person who's in Romans 7, they wouldn't be able to say something like this. 1 Corinthians 11. 1. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. And here we'll see Paul's example contrasted with the example of others. Starting in verse 17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example. Hmm. Join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So he's saying that we're a pattern for you, brethren. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. That's That last few words are going to be very important. We look at Romans 7, 8 here in a minute. Who set their mind on earthly things. And Paul is saying he's different than them. To follow his example and not be an enemy of Christ and not set your mind on earthly things. Okay? So someone who's in Romans 7 states, and we're going to look at it here more in depth in a second, they're setting their mind on earthly things. But Paul's saying, I'm not doing that. Those people who are doing that, who he's weeping about, whose end is destruction, who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, they're the ones setting their mind on earthly things. Okay? So that's Philippians 3, 17 through 19. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. And now Paul is going to appeal to the church of Thessalonica about his character, about what they know about his character. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, starting in verse 10. He says uh, to the church of Thessalonica, You are witnesses... And God also. It's not just are they witnesses, but now even the things they don't see, that God only sees, is a witness as well. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you should walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That definitely does not comport with Romans 7, 14-25. He walked devoutly and justly and blamelessly. And not only are they witnesses, but God is a witness of how he walked in that way. So he's calling upon God to be a witness. Even the things they don't know about, he's saying, I walked devoutly and justly and blamelessly. 
and how he behaved himself among those who believe. Okay, let's go on to 1 Timothy 3. If you look at this before, the qualifications for a bishop, overseer, elder, pastor, leader in the church. And let's see if Romans 7, 14-25, what Paul, if he's talking in the present tense about himself while he's a Christian, is he, let's see if he's qualified, according to what he says here, to be an overseer, to be an elder, to be a pastor. If Romans 7, 14-25 is talking about him in the present tense. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up, with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, if, if Paul is who he's de, de, uh, describing in Romans 7, 14, 25, he's disqualified as an elder. He's disqualified as a bishop. He's disqualified, surely, as an apostle, an overseer in the church of God, a leader in the church of God, if Romans 7, 14 to 25 is talking about him in the present tense. Okay, let's move on to uh, 2 Timothy in chapter 1, in verse 3. It's a real short statement here. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. It's not only according to Acts was he striving for a pure conscience before God and men, but now he's saying, I serve with a pure conscience. Now, the guy in Romans 7, his conscience is condemning him. We'll see that more here in a minute. But his conscience, the inward man, is condemning him. So he is not, the guy in Romans 7 is not serving God with a pure conscience. Okay? Alright, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10. <clears throat> Talking to Timothy here, he says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. So he's saying, you have followed these things, my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance. Now, if he was sinning every single day, as the guy in Romans 7 is having a problem, he can't even overcome sin at all, surely he wouldn't even mention his life. He'd probably be ashamed of his life and how he's living. He definitely wouldn't call upon people to follow his example or imitate him, as we've seen so far. Okay? Alright, 2 Timothy 4. <clears throat> verses 6 through 8. Paul talking about the end of his life here, how he's finished the race. He says, For I am ready to being, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to also, also to all who have loved his appearing. So he's fought the good fight, he's finished the race, he has kept the faith. But if we were to go back to 1 Corinthians 9, for a second, it says in verse 27, he's talking about running a race here from verses 24 to 27. He says in verse 27, but I discipline my body, which is what he's referring to in Romans 7, his body, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Now Romans 7, he had no ability 
to bring into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now he's saying at the end of his life here in, in, in 2 Timothy 4, that he, he finished the race. He kept the faith. So he has not been disqualified. He's made it to the end. He's brought his body into subjection. So that when he's preached to others, he will not become disqualified. Okay? Alright, so let's move on to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Now, some people would disagree with me that this is written by Paul, but I don't see how they possibly could. Uh, Hebrews 13, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> he says, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that it may be restored to you the sooner. So he's confident that he has a good conscience in all things. This, none of these things, these, and there's other verses we could go to too as well, but none of these verses uh, give the picture of a man that Romans 7, 14 to 25 are talking about. Okay, It doesn't give that picture. So we've looked at uh, other writings where Paul talks about himself, and I think we can safely say just from that, that Romans 7, 14-25 is not talking about Paul in the present tense while he's a Christian. Okay? Um, so let's now let's look at the immediate context. Let's go back to Romans 6 here. And we're going to read through Romans 8. And then when I, I'm going to point out some things that were being said here. And then we'll look at Romans 7 and see what it actually is saying. Okay? Alright, Romans 6, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. Now, we just said that we're... Sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And we talked about Romans 5, how the grace is so much greater than the sin, and uh, that grace can overcome all sin and give eternal life, no matter how great the sin is, no matter how much the sin is, no matter how big the sin is, grace can overcome it all. Now he says in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. We'll stop right there. The person in Romans 7, 14-25, do they have the grace of God? They're continuing in sin. Certainly not. They should not be continuing in sin. Okay, so let's read on. How we, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So this person in Romans 6, talking about someone who has the grace of God, a Christian now, has died to sin. Now, if something is dead, does it have any power over you? So this person in Romans 7, have they died to sin? No, they have not died to sin. Or do you not know that as many as us as were baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we're, we, we died with him. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Is that person in Romans 7 walking in newness of life? They haven't even died with Christ yet. In baptism, let alone be raised in newness of life, which is the coming up out of the water, symbolic of that. For if we have been united together in the likeness of Christ's death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. The guy in Romans 7, was his old man crucified? When something's crucified, what happens to it? It dies. So his old man hasn't died yet. His old man still has power over him. That the body of sin might be done away with. Now we saw a lot in, in Romans 7, we're going to go through here in a minute, about flesh and in my body... And he's talking about the body of sin being done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. This guy in Romans 7, has his body of sin been done away with? Is he still a slave to sin? 
he's still a slave to sin. Because the things that he wants to do, he can't do, he says. The things he hates, that he does. Verse 7 of Romans 6. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Is that guy in Romans 7 freed from sin? No, surely not. He's still in bondage to it, in slavery to it. For if we die with Christ, we believe we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So Christ died to, died to sin. We died to sin with him and, and baptism and raised the newness of life. We live to God, just like Christ lived to God. Is the guy in Romans 7 living to God or living to the flesh? He's living to the flesh. Verse 11. Likewise you also, talking to Christians, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, the reckoning to be dead to sin is not a one-time choice. Okay? It's an everyday choice. That's why it says reckon. Consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now, I didn't look in the Greek, but I bet that's logizomai there. The word usually translated as imputed. And there's no transferring going on there, is it? Likewise, you also transfer yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. That doesn't make any sense. The word imputed means consider, reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in this lust. Is the guy in Romans 7 allowing sin to reign in his mortal body? That he, yes, that he obeys it in his lust. So sin has, is a master over him. It's ruling over him. It's reigning over him. It's king over him. He's letting it rain. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, which one is that guy in Romans 7 doing? Presenting his body to unrighteousness or to righteousness? Unrighteousness. Okay? For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Is the guy in Romans 7... Remember, sin has dominion over him at this point. Is he under law still? Is he under grace? He's still under law. Because when you're under grace, sin does not have dominion over you. does not have rule or kingship or power over you. Okay? When you're under grace, sin's power has been broken. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whomever you present yourself slaves to obey, you're that one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? Now, if that's true, presenting to sin, you're a slave to it. Presenting yourself to righteousness, you're a slave to that. Just like Jesus says in Romans 8, he that commits sin is a slave to sin. So the committing of sin, the presenting of yourself to sin, makes you a slave to sin. It makes that thing, sin or righteous, your master. Okay? The guy in Romans 7, he's a slave to sin. So he's still a slave. He's not a slave to righteousness. He can't even do righteousness according to himself in Romans 7. He's still a slave to sin. Verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were a slave of sin, that you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So they used to be, were, past tense, slaves of sin. But what do they do? They obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to them, and having been set free, they became slaves of righteousness. Because now they're presenting their bodies to righteousness. 
Now they're obeying righteousness. They're not obeying sin anymore. They've been set free from sin. And now they're a slave of righteousness. But that, that's not describing the person in Romans 7. That person is still a slave to sin. He's not a slave to righteousness. He has been set free from sin. And I think Romans uh, 6.17 is really almost exactly the same thing they're saying in Romans uh, 7.25. Romans 7.25 says, I thank God, or verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Go back to Romans 6 and verse uh, 17. But God be thanked, and though you were a slave of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And being having set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. It's almost synonymous there. And so Paul is speaking about a Christian in the present tense right there. And this in Romans 7, 24 and 25 is talking about someone who's almost a Christian, Christian who's about to become a Christian. Okay? Uh, then in verse 19. Of Romans 6, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, lead to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So you used to present your members as slaves of uncleanness to more lawlessness and more lawlessness. But now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were, past tense, slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. Now that right there describes the man in Romans seven fourteen to twenty five. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's exactly what that guy was. He was free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then? The things of which you are now ashamed. That guy's still ashamed in Romans seven, fourteen to twenty five. For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to, holy, uh, to holiness and the end everlasting life. That's speaking of a Christian in the present tense. For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I want you to pick out here, we looked at the little things here and there throughout Romans 6, but I want you to see the overall picture here too. He's giving several different pictures so far. First, he gives a picture of being baptized. You die, and you rise to newness of life. And he gives you a picture of the resurrection, like Christ said. He rose to newness of life, and now he's living to God. He's dead to sin. And then you have the picture of instruments being used one way, and now it's being used this way. It'd be like an axe murderer taking that same axe and now using it to chop wood to keep his family warm in the wintertime. Okay? He's using the instrument differently now. So we have the baptism and resurrection. We have the instrument being used differently. And then we have the slavery. You once were a slave to this. Now you're a slave to this. He's giving several different examples, Paul is, comparing the non-Christian life to the Christian life. You used to be, you, you died to that, and now you're walking in newness of life. You used to use your body this way, but now you're using it this way. You used to be a slave to sin, and now you're a slave to righteousness. So there's three different examples he's given in Romans 6 of comparing the two different lives. And you see a big difference here. And what I submit to you is the guy in Romans 7, 14-25 is the former life. It's not the present life of a Christian. It's the former life of the Christian. Let's go to Romans 7, where at the beginning, Paul gives another example comparing the two things. Okay, This time he uses marriage. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. Who is he speaking to? Jews. They know the law. And there are some Gentiles who would know the law, but they have to have knowledge of what he's talking about here. He's talking about the Mosaic law here. That the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. 
For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So he's saying in the law, if you're married to someone, you're not that you've divorced that person, but you're still married to them. Okay? And while you're still married to them, they're still your husband, they're still your wife, you decide to go off and marry another man, you're an adulterer or an adulteress according to the law. Because according to the law, as long as that person is your husband or wife, you're bound to that person as long as you and they live. Okay. Now, obviously, this does not talk about divorce or dissolving of marriage, as Deuteronomy 24 refers to. This is not even the point of this. The point of this is that if you're still married to someone, they're still your husband or wife, you are bound to them as long as they live. If they die... Now, according to that law, you're free to marry someone else and not be an adulterer or an adulteress. Okay? And then verse 4, now he's going to give the comparison here he's trying to give. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So just as that person, according to the law, they are free to marry someone else, now we're becoming dead to the law, that we may be married to someone else, Christ. Okay? So that's the comparison he's giving here. And what is the point of being married to Christ at the end of verse 4? That we should bear fruit to God. Is the guy in Romans 7 bearing fruit to God? He's bearing bad fruit, which means he's got a bad tree. He needs to obey Jesus and make the tree good, right? Instead of having a bad tree, it produces bad fruit. So a good tree produces good fruit. But he's supposed to be bearing fruit to God. That's the point of being married to Christ. For when we were in the flesh, speaking of the past life now, when you were married to the law, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to this. So this, speaking of the past now, this is a great preface, a great precursor, a great introduction to what he's about to talk about here in verses 14 to 25. He says, when we were in the flesh. Now the word flesh here is sarks. Now, is he saying now that we're a Christian that we don't have a physical body anymore? No, he's not saying that. He defines flesh in this very verse. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members. That is the definition of being in the flesh. That sinful passions are aroused in your members and are at work. You're obeying them. Okay? That is the definition of flesh, as Paul is using it in this passage here. Not talking about the physical body, because sinners are in a physical body. Saints are in a physical body. Christ was in a physical body. So we're not talking about that, but he's defining what, how he's using the word flesh in this chapter, right here from the beginning. Okay? When we were in the flesh, the sinful... And what, now keep in mind, this is were here. Three times the word were appears in this one verse, which tells me he's talking about a past time, not a present time. Okay? Now you talk about a present time in verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, those sinful passions which were aroused by law and were at work. We have been, we have died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The guy in Romans 7, 14 to 25 was not serving in the newness of the spirit yet. 
He had not died to what he had been held by yet. He had not died to the law. He had not died to those sinful passions which were aroused by the law or were at work in him. He had not died to the law period and been married to Christ. He was not married to Christ yet. And that's why he says at the end of in verse 25, who will save him? Who will deliver him? Okay, Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, I mean, he's, he's saying this because of what he said in verse 5, that these sinful passions which were in the flesh, which were at work, were aroused by the law. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that the law was causing him to sin? It means that he now, by the knowledge of the law, was understanding what he was doing was wrong. And just having knowledge that it was wrong does not mean that he's going to stop it. Hey, honey, can you take her out, please? So having knowledge of the law does not necessitate obedience to the law. It simply just shows you that you are a sinner, and what you have been doing and what you are doing is sinful. That's what it means, okay? So he's responding to that objection, but he's, he's, he's picturing in people's minds that the law itself is sinful in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known, there's knowledge there, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Okay? And the word know here, you see it two different times there in verse 7, I would not have known sin, that's in the past tense. So he's talking about a past time when he got the knowledge of sin. It's in the aorist, which is the Greek version of the past tense. So he got that knowledge sometime in the past, is what he's referring to. And then the second time, for I would not have known covetousness, unless the law has said you shall not covet, that's in the pluperfect, okay? Which is not used very much in the Greek, by the way, but it's referring to, if remember we talked about Matthew 24 and how Jesus said, uh, no one can know the day or the hour, and that was in the perfect tense, remember that? Okay? And the perfect tense means that, means that uh, it's something that happened in the past that has ramifications upon the present, but it speaks nothing about the future. Okay? The pluperfect is something that happened in the past that had an effect for a while, but then ended. So he's not even speaking there of the present. He's talking about something in the past that he, he had an understanding of it being covetousness, and then it ended at some point in time. Okay? That's important to understand for that. So he got a knowledge of sin, an understanding of sin, and then he began to understand what covetousness was, and it came to a point in time where that effect ended, possibly because, in my opinion, he probably repented of this covetousness, and that's why it didn't continue to the present time, but that effect ended at some point in time in the past. Okay? Does everyone understand what pluperfect means? Okay. All right, well, I think I lost some people on that one, but that's okay. Okay, verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, the word taking here, the sin taking opportunity, that's in the past tense, and produced in me all manner of evil, is not in the Greek, by the way, all desire, those are both in the past. He's speaking of a past encounter with the law and sin and what happened in that point in time. But both of those things are in the past tense. And he goes on to say in verse 9, I was alive once without the law. 
There's an innocent issue here. There's an innocence. He was alive once without law, when he, before he had law. And what does law do according to verse 7? It brings the knowledge of sin. It brings the knowledge of sin. So he was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now that revived there and that died there are both in the past tense. So he's not speaking about the present life, he's speaking about sometime in the past when the law came, the knowledge of sin came, sin revived and I died. Now, was it, was it that he, at that point in time, had never done a sinful thing in his past? No, it means that he became aware now that it was sinful, and that's why he died. <clears throat> Remember, spiritual death is happens to someone when they come to the understanding of what sin is, and they choose to disobey God anyway. Okay, Sin separates you from God. You're not born that way, and this proves you're not born that way, spiritual death, because at one point in time, when he was without the law, he was alive. And at one point in time, when the law came, he died. Because sin was revived. <clears throat> and the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Now, the commandment's good. It's holy. And its purpose is to give you life. That's why in, in the Old Testament it says, choose life or death. The law was meant for your good. But once you've broken the law, the law can do you no good. The law can't save you. The law can't give you life because you've already died, and the law has no way of reviving someone back to life once they've died. But you know what has the power to do that? The Spirit of God has the power to raise someone, to revive them once they've died because of their sin. What's that? Yes, the Holy Spirit is the teacher, that's right. Okay, verse 10. And the commandment which I was to bring light, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Okay, it's all in the past tense. Taking, deceived, killed, it's all in the past tense. As Paul is talking about a past situation and when it happened to him. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it may appear sin, was producing death in me, that through what is good, that sin through the commandment may become exceedingly sinful. And herein lies one of the whole purposes of the law in the first place. is to show you how exceedingly sinful you are, and that, of course, at the end of Romans 7, to point you to Christ. Because once you disobey the law, it cannot help you. Once you've disobeyed the law of God, it cannot save you. No amount of obedience to God's law will forgive you of your past disobedience, will cleanse you of your past disobedience, will rise you from your spiritual death to spiritual life. It won't happen. It doesn't have the power to do that. And that wasn't its purpose in the first place. Okay, now we're starting to get into verse 14 here. Okay? And as we're reading through verse 14 through verse 25, <clears throat> I'm going to define some things for you in here according to what we've read so far and according to what we're going to read, and hopefully you'll see that what I'm saying is true. This is a person who's under conviction of the law, but they're not a Christian. We've already seen it couldn't be a, Paul because of what he said about himself. We've seen in Romans 6 that couldn't be a Christian because a Christian is dead to sin. They're walking in newness of life. Their old man was crucified. The body of sin was done away with. They've been freed from sin. 
They are not slaves of rights of sin anymore, but they're slaves of righteousness. Sin has do, no dominion or power over them. They're no longer presenting their bodies as, as instruments of sin, but as instruments of holiness. And they've been set free from sin. So we've seen from Romans 6, this can't be talking about a Christian. Okay? Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Now the word carnal there, that means fleshly, of the flesh. It means uh, merely human. It means earthly. Okay, so when you see the word carnal uh, here, it's not the same word as we uh, that we use for to, to def, uh, define the body you're living in here. It's talking about someone who's acting in a merely human way or an earthly way or an, a fleshly way. Okay? I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, we looked at Romans 6, and it says that you used to present yourselves as slaves of Sin, right? But now you're presenting yourself as a Christian as slaves of righteousness. Okay? So who sold them under sin? Who sold them under sin? They did, right? They presented themselves as slaves of sin to unrighteousness. But Christians now are presenting themselves as slaves to unright to righteousness to obedience. Okay? So it's not um it's not Adam's fault that you were a sinner. And I, another thing I want to point out here is an overall arching thing here is that you don't see any mention of Adam in Romans 7, 14, 25, do you? Any mention of the fall of mankind? Any mention of the way you're born? Any mention of a baby or a toddler or a, you know, anything else there? Or a child there? No, no mention of those things, okay? So I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. So obviously, He's understanding that uh, what he's doing, he shouldn't be doing that. And now he's beginning to hate it. He says, what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Okay? So the law is good and it's convicting him. Okay? That what he is doing is wrong and that the law is good. Now, there's something involuntary within every all of us that we don't even have to think about, that we don't consciously do, and that's our conscience. It convicts us whether we like it or not. Okay, The law of God written upon our hearts tells us what things are wrong and what things are right, and we don't even think about it. It just does it automatically, because it's built into our bodies from birth. It's been given to us by God. It's an involuntary thing. Now, obedience to your conscience, that is a voluntary thing. Or disobedience to your conscience, that is a voluntary thing. Okay? But uh, the conscience does its job, whether you like it or not. Now, you can see your conscience, you can corrupt your conscience, defile your conscience, but that takes a lot of time of sin, disobeying your conscience to bring it to that point. Okay? Yeah, you don't want to play with it. You don't know when you'll become a reprobate if you continue to do those things that you know you shouldn't be doing. Okay, verse 16. If then I, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So the law is good. He's agreeing with the law, and he's doing that uh, involuntarily because it's just something within, that's built within him that the law is good. He knows it's good. And his conscience is obviously bothering him to tell him that. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, sin that dwells in me. That's a difficult one there. 
But let's go to uh, to verse 23 here. Skip ahead just so we can understand what that means for sin to dwell in you. Okay. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So there's a law of sin that dwells in him, that's in his members. Now, you think of the word law, what do you think of? Judgment, okay. Rules, okay. We think of God's law, right? Which is rule. We think of the law of the nation, which is you break the law, you're going to get a ticket or you're going to put in jail, right? But the, the Greek word for law here doesn't necessarily mean that. Okay, it can mean that. But it also means a custom or a norm. Okay? It means a procedure or practice that has taken hold. Do you get that? A procedure or a practice that has taken hold to the point that it becomes a custom or a norm. Okay? One earthly example I'll give you is uh, celebrating Christmas. People put up a tree in their house. They put lights and decorations on the tree. They put lights around their house. They may put a Santa, a Santa Claus and a snowman out in front. And it's come to the point where they know at a certain point in time on the calendar, maybe around Thanksgiving, those things are going to start to go up. It becomes a custom, it becomes a norm. It becomes a procedure or practice that has taken hold. In the military, making your bed. I got into the military, I had, I didn't make my bed when I got into the military. I left it a mess. My room was a mess. My mom would testify, you probably couldn't even see the floor in my bedroom. It was so messy. Okay? When I got into basic training, there was a procedure or a practice that began to take hold. And for good reason. I had to make my bed with hospital corners every single morning. And if I didn't, I was in big trouble. So it was a procedure or a practice that took hold. It became a custom or a norm to me, at least until I got out of the military. <laughs> and then I reverted back to my old ways. But uh, not with the floor all messy, but was not making my bed. Um, but it was it, that would be a law too. So you see the word law here, and we see in verse 23, says that, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. And the law of his mind is that involuntary thing, that conscience, the law of God written upon your heart, that it bears witness, it either accuses you or else excuses, according to Romans 2, 14-15. Okay? But the law of sin, which is in his members, is a procedure or practice that has taken hold and has become a custom or a norm to him. It doesn't say anything about his birth. But it was a practice or a procedure that has taken hold and has become a custom or a norm. So let's go back up to uh, verse 14. Let's read it through to where we were right now with that definition in mind. Okay? And we've talked about this before in, in, in the fellowship, but that if you continue to do a certain sin, your body at first, your conscience rejects it. Your body may even reject, depending on what the sin is. It may be lying, your face will turn red because you got caught in a lie, or you got caught cheating on a test involuntarily. Uh, you get drunk, your body rejects you, you throw it up, your brain cells reject it, your liver and kidneys reject it. Uh, you may get involved in fornication, you'll get an STD, you'll, all kinds of things can happen. Your body rejects these things. And so it's unnatural things. But as you do it over a period of time, it becomes a norm to you. It becomes a practice to you. It becomes a custom to you that you no longer hear your conscience or understand or even care about what your conscience says. 
You do it because it's become practice to you. And this is what it's referring to when it talks about a law of sin, which is in your members. Okay? And it takes time to develop this for some sins. For some sins, they take hold right away. Uh, take crack cocaine, for example. For most people, that takes hold right away. Uh, smoking cigarettes. For most people, it takes hold right away. I remember vividly. I was 16 years old. My friends began to smoke cigarettes. These two guys who told me they'd never smoke. We were all, all, all athletes. We wouldn't do it. Just for, because we were, were a sports idolatry. We want to continue to be sports idolaters. So we're trading one sin for the next. And, um, we, they said they would never smoke, but then they said, well, we're smoking now. Let's go down to the, uh, the park over here next to the school. Let's do some smoking. And so I'd try to smoke and, <coughs> you know, cause my lungs are made for oxygen, not for smoke. Okay. That's common sense. Uh, and so I, I, I didn't like it. My body was rejecting it. And I tried it several other times. And I never got addicted to it. Praise God. Never got addicted to it. But my body was rejecting it. I was coughing it up. You know, uh, alcohol. My body hated that at first. I didn't even like My taste buds didn't like it at first. But I began to drink it and drink it and develop a tolerance over time. And after a while, I began to desire it. I wanted it. You know, not just on the weekends anymore, but I wanted it more than just the weekends. And so that's what I think we see a picture of here. So with this, this definition of law of sin, which is in my members, I want you to go back here and I want you to, I'm going to read through from the beginning of verse 14 again and read it through again so we can understand, I think, what it's saying here about a sinner who's under conviction, who realizes their inability to overcome their slavery to sin. Even though they're realizing that the law is good, their sin is bad, their conscience convicted them, they know it's wrong, and they're doing it anyway. And they see no way out of doing it. Continue, because they've developed this law of sin in their members, which in a long period of time, they can see no way out of it. It's like a drug addict calling and saying, I have, I have no way of getting out of this. They keep going back to it. Verse 14. For no law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Speaking of an unbeliever here, I am carnal. Sold under sin, of course, by his own choice, presenting his members to sin. He sold himself to sin as his master, as that is reigning over him and being Lord over him. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Why am, why am I doing this? This is wrong. For what I will to do, which is I'm understanding now what I need to do, I, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. He's beginning to self-loathe himself for the sin he's in because he knows it's wrong. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, there's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And that's referring to, once again, this law of sin which is in his members, and he's captive to it. He's a slave to it. And he sees no way out of his own willpower to get out of it. In his own willpower, he sees no way of getting out of this. Okay, let's, let's start, let's go in verse 18 now. Keeping these proper definitions in mind. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells. Let's stop right there. If a Christian has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, do they have something good dwelling in their flesh? So once again, this can't be a Christian. I have nothing good dwelling in me. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. He's having that, he's realizing, I can't overcome this by myself. For the good I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. 
Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, that law of sin that verse 23 talks about, sin that dwells in me. If I find in a law, a custom, a norm, a procedure or practice that's taken place, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. The inward man is that man that has the conscience, the law of God written upon his heart, and it delights in the law of God because it agrees with the law of God. That is good and holy and true. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So he's got these two laws fighting. The law that God gave him from birth, his conscience, that's good and holy and just, and then he has the law of sin, which he has developed over a period of time. Now, it doesn't say in here that he developed it over a period of time. I am supposing that. But it also does not say that he was born that way, which some people suppose. That he's born with this law of sin in his members. Okay, But of course, we've at, through these other teachings we've gone through, we've seen that that's not true. Okay, So we support that with other scriptures against the doctrine of original sin. And so it's bringing him to captivity to the law of sin which is in his members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now why is his body a body of death at this point in time? He's obeying sin. He's a slave to sin. He's a law of sin within his members. That's bringing him to captivity. And he's realizing who will save me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will free me? As Romans 6 says. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Okay, because he's developed the law of sin within his members. But the law of God, as he knows is right, knows is holy, knows is true and voluntary, he wants to do it, but he can't find a way out of it. And what is his solution? Jesus Christ. That is his solution. Jesus Christ. Dying to the law and being married to another. Jesus being set free from sin and becoming a slave of righteousness, being baptized with Christ in his death, dying with him, and being raised to new life with him, and be able to walk in the Spirit now instead of in the flesh. And that's what Romans 8 is going to talk about, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now in Romans 7, are they walking according to the flesh? Or according to the Spirit. Walking according to the flesh. And he says in Romans 8, 1, that if you walk according to the flesh, you have condemnation. So obviously, once again, they can't be talking about a Christian back there. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit of life made him free from the law of sin, which was in his members. That's what it says in verse 2. Has made me free from the law of sin and death. So the law of sin, which was in his members, the Spirit made him free from that. It freed him from that. And of course we know, we get the Spirit at conversion. And so at conversion, we're made free from that law of sin, which we develop in our members. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Christ came in human form, and of course, all humans have used their flesh in a sinful way. So that's what it's saying when he says he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? Because Christ never sinned in the flesh. 
He never sinned in the flesh like we've sinned in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law, which is complete perfection, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So you see, there's two things at work here. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Why? Because Christ perfectly kept it, and we're in Him, we're married to Him. Not only that, but also we are walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So there's two things. Christ and walking according to the Spirit. And you really can't have one without the other, friends. Because you can't be in Christ if you walk according to the flesh. And if you walk according to the Spirit, you've got to be in Christ. But it's a both-and thing. They're really inseparable. Okay? For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we're talking about, once again, this flesh thing here, going back to verse 5, Romans 7, is talking about the sinful passions... Which were, arou- which were aroused and were at work in our members. And we're talking about the law of sin, which is in their members. Okay? That's what we're talking We're talking about flesh here in this passage. So for those who live according to the flesh, according to that law of sin in their members, according to the sinful passions that work in them, they set their minds on it, the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Okay? Verse 6, For to be carnally, fleshly minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So if you continue to be minded upon the flesh or setting your mind on the flesh, okay? If you continue to set your mind upon the things of the flesh, uh, that's death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now this guy in Romans 7, 14 to 25, did he have any peace? He, he was turmoil within him. He said he was carnally minded. But so he has no peace, and rightly so, because to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. He needs to die to the flesh, as it says in Romans 6. Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity, or an enemy of God, against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Now this verse right here, people will say, well, that means that those who are carnally minded right now, they have no ability to stop being carnally minded, to submit themselves to Christ, and to be spiritually minded, they have no ability, they have no free will. But that's not what it's saying here. Go back up to verse 6. It says, those who set their minds on the flesh, those are the ones who are carnally minded. And setting your mind upon something, purposing your mind upon something, takes free will. It's just like presenting your body. It says in Romans 6, you're presenting. So as long as you're presenting your body to the flesh, the law of sin in your members, or you're presenting your body to the sinful passions which were at work, then you have no life, you have no peace, you're an enemy of God, you're, it's death, you don't have the Spirit of God living in, in you, and you cannot please God. As long as you're doing that, you cannot please God. And verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, once again, is he saying, you no longer have a physical body? No, we're going back to this definition we've given this whole time here, of the flesh. It's talking about the sinful passions which were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. We're talking about this law of sin which is in our members. Okay, And he's saying, that's not you. That's not you, Christians. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. 
But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, or if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, there's another term that's synonymous with these other terms. Deeds of the body is synonymous with carnality. It's synonymous with being fleshly. It's synonymous with having that law of sin in your members or sin that dwells in you. It's all These are all synonymous terms Paul is using here to all communicate the same thing. That's not the way we are anymore. That's the way the unconverted man is. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, and if you have the Spirit of God, you are Christ, you're not in the flesh, you put to death the deeds that abide, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So that guy in Romans 7, he was not being led by the Spirit of God. He's being led by the flesh. He's not a child of God. He's not a son of God. He was a son of the devil. Because he was obeying the flesh. For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit will bear witness with you. Okay, so we have the Roman 7 man. I'm just going to give you a synopsis here. The Roman 7 man, he's carnal and fleshly. He's not able to overcome his own slavery to sin. Sin dwells in him. Nothing good dwells in him. He's not delivered. He's in need of deliverance. He was waiting. He was walking and living according to the flesh. He was carnally and fleshly minded. He had no life or peace. He does not have the Holy Spirit. He was not led by the Spirit. Okay? Contrast that with the Christian life according to Romans 6 and 8. Dead to sin. Walk in newness of life. The old man, the body of sin, was crucified. No longer slaves of sin. They've been freed from sin. They walk, live, and are led according to the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in them, and they have life and peace. Seems pretty clear to me, friends. So Romans 7, 14-25, once again, is talking about this man, who Paul is going back in time, and presenting it to people as if it's still in the present, and he's telling them what it was like. Not necessarily him, so to speak, just anybody who's been a sinner, and has come to a knowledge of truth, what it's like to originally come to a knowledge that what you're doing is wrong, then trying to get out of it by your own effort, and then finally seeing no escape but Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 7, 14, 25 is a narrative of what a sinner goes through when they come to a knowledge of the truth. When they come out of the flesh and come into the spirit. When they die to the law and get married to Christ. When they get freed from sin and become a slave of righteousness. When they're baptized with Christ and walk in newness of life and resurrection power. So hopefully that's uh, you know that's a mouthful there. Hopefully that's all understandable. Yes, brother. Yeah, I, I uh, you were teaching this today. I really uh, associate this with my conversion. Uh-huh. I spent uh, well, you know, I didn't do that testimony, but about eight months where I was going back and forth under conviction and trying to clean myself and throwing this away and doing that and doing this and the Holy Spirit saying, no, you're still not clean. Yeah. You haven't been cleansed yet, but the law was pounding me hard. Right. The Spirit was under great conviction about my sin and I knew I, and then finally in desperation, right. and that day on his first, 1996, I cried out to Jesus and asked him to forgive me. Yep. And because I knew I was condemned, I was completely under 
Yeah, I mean, I, I have this, you know, same testimony. I mean, I, I, it's, people were trying to reach out to me. I was hearing the truth. I was under strong conviction, realizing the frailty of life, and I just cried out to Jesus. You know, that's what you have to do. You have to cry out to him. Josh? What a life it is to, to to think or to know that you can't overcome sin. I wouldn't want to live. I mean, I would literally be depressed. I just... There's despair, there's depression, there's want, not wanting to live because you think... You can't overcome sin. This very thing that you know is right, your conscience tells you is true and holy and good, this very thing that you're convicted, I mean, if you can't overcome it, why does your conscience keep accusing that God gave you? And why does God command all men everywhere to repent? You know, so, it just was, uh, you know, when I, when I was an early Christian, there were some people who taught me those things, and I was under that impression for a while too, and it was very depressing. And it wasn't until I came to understanding that, yes, I can't overcome sin, that I just, what a, what a miserable life to be in defeat all the time. What a miserable life. And I tell you, like, just like Josh was saying, it makes you just want to go headlong into it. If I can't overcome it, I just get as much as I can. That's what it makes you want to do. If this is the way it's got to be, let's just go head out, go all out for it, you know? But when you realize, no, I don't have to, I don't have to be miserable and depressed. I don't have to be under conviction all the time. I can be holy. That's when it becomes victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Tracy. Yeah, I was going to say another, really strong passage that uh, would conclusively prove that it could not have been Paul talking about himself, because the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Ghost uh, through uh, holy men of old. Right. So in order for Paul to be writing scripture, he would have had to be a holy man. Right. So he never could have been a sinful man as he was writing scripture. That would be contradicting right. what that passage says. So he, had to have been, he would have to have been holy in order to write Romans 7. Amen. Amen. Uh, another thing I want to point out was uh, there is actually a literary, literary device. I, I believe I'm saying it right. I think it's called past perfect present tense. And the way it works is just the way Romans uh, 6, 7, and 8 are laid out. Is that you start talking about the past, and then at some point along the, the line, you transition as if you're talking about the present, but you're still talking about a past experience. Mm -hmm. And then it comes back to the pres actual present. Mm -hmm. And it's called the uh, past perfect present tense. And it's used in uh, liter literary things all the time. Yeah, it's really the most vivid way of storytelling. Mm -hmm. To try to bring the people you're talking to into your past as if it's the present. Right. To give them a picture of what you went through. And that's, that's really, I mean, it's just like, it's like having a, reading a biography or autobiography or, or watching a movie on someone's life. It brings you to where they were. Uh, but there, it's not happening at this present time, but it's bringing you to where they were, and it gives you a real uh, picture of what it was like to be there. I believe I'm saying, I, I, you know, I'm not sure if I'm getting exactly right, but I think it's past perfect present tense. 
I think that's what it is. But I'm, I'm kind of vaguely recollecting it. It's something called the historical present, too. The historical present that you're speaking the present tense, but you're talking about something that happened in history. Now, now in, in the Greek, there's just it's just present tense, most of this. But we see from the rest of Scripture, as we interpret properly, not only in this immediate context of Romans 6 and Romans 8, two bookends of Romans 7, we also see in the other Scripture where Paul says about himself. Now, I could have went, I mean, I had some other notes here. I didn't want to over, overbear you guys of, of some other things that Paul says that go against the common. Not, not about himself, but just period. Go against what he says in Romans 7, 14, 25. That's, if that's the common, normal Christian life. Uh, so there's other things we could have looked at too. But the fact is that when you look at the context, we know when he's speaking presently here, just like in 1 Timothy 1.15, he's not talking about the present at that point in time. He's talking about the past present. Okay, past present. Yes, Josh. Oh, yeah, sure. All right, the Roman seven man. He's carnal and fleshly, according to Romans seven fourteen. Uh, he's not able to overcome his slavery to sin, according to Romans seven fifteen, eighteen, and nineteen. In Romans 8, 7, and 8. Sin dwells in him, according to Romans 7, 17, 20, and 23. Not, uh, Romans 7, 17, and also 7, 20, and 7, 23. Sin dwells in him. Uh, Romans 7, 18 says that he says that nothing good dwells in him. In Romans 7, 24, he's... Uh, he has not been delivered. He's in need of deliverance. He was walking and living according to the flesh, which Romans eight one, Romans eight five, Romans eight thirteen talks about. He was carnally and fleshly minded. That's Romans eight six and Romans seven twenty five. He had no, the guy in Romans 7, 4 to 25 had no life or peace, which Romans 8, 6 talks about. And since he had nothing good dwelling in him, he did not have the Holy Spirit, which Romans 8, 9, Romans 8, 11, 8, 13, 8, 16 talks about. And since he didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of him, he was not led by the Spirit, which Romans 8, 13 talks about. So he was carnally, fleshly, not able to overcome his slavery to sin. Sin dwells in him. He had nothing good dwelling in him. Uh, not delivered and needed deliverance. He was walking and living according to the flesh. He was carnally and fleshly minded. He was, he had no life or peace. He did not have the Holy Spirit and was not led by the Spirit. Perfect description of a sinner. Obviously not Paul. Yes, Paul John. Uh-huh. No, Romans 7 is is only about an unbeliever. Now, of course, as Paul says in Romans 6, you need to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. So you could go back to having sin as your master and being in slavery to it. Uh, but the guy in Romans 7, just from the context of Romans 7, he's obviously talking about someone who was in the flesh and then he got into the spirit. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, last week uh, you went over uh, basically that there are natural desires that our body has. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, those are things that we came with. And there's a, a lawful way and an unlawful way to satisfy those desires. But the desires themselves, the desires don't care how they get satisfied. Uh, they're just desires. Yep. And uh, I would say uh, the law of sin, uh, those are desires that people add to themselves. That they add these uh, desires in. And some desires that they, like drunkenness, that's not something we're born with. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of these other things that people add to themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's kind of like added perversions or added added law of sin that they put on there. Yeah. Uh, but it, it kind of functions in the same way. It just doesn't it doesn't care itself how it's satisfied as long as it's satisfied. Mm -hmm. So we just uh, need to be aware of that. I think. Yeah, I mean, not all sin fits into the category of fulfilling a natural desire in an unlawful, right. unnatural way. And and desire. it doesn't say specifically in Romans seven fourteen twenty five what's what he's doing, what sin he's doing. Um, the sins he's doing could be unlawful fulfillment of natural desires, or it could have been uh, unnatural desires fulfilled. You know, they shouldn't be fulfilled at all. You know, so it could be either or. Uh, it doesn't really specifically say, but either way, he's developed it over a period of time. He's developed, uh, or it could be him fulfilling a natural desire in an unlawful way and continuing to do it that, and that's still the same thing. Still, still the same problem. And so we're talking about this law of sin in his members, which is a procedure or practice that has taken over a custom or norm. Okay, so you think about the definition, that really could apply to the laws of the land, too. A custom or procedure that has uh, taken over. You know, we, we came to America, we had, we had laws that they made here. And they have taken over. Now, unfortunately, there's other laws that are taken over now. They're going to supersede those and make it more difficult for us. Okay, anybody else? Was Paul, uh, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Mm -hmm. And he spoke of himself in the present tense and other part of the scripture yeah. and referred to the grace of, and the grace of God working mightily in him right. presently. Right. And by that grace, he is who he is. Right. And we know that the grace of God teaches us yes. to deny ourselves. Amen. Amen. So I thought of that, and then it seems like uh, as one simple mistake you can make with, or many can make with this, is just reading six, and then going into seven, and then with having six and eight, like you said, bookends. Right. And then seeing seven right in the middle, they're almost like reading it like it's supposed to be by itself, chronological, or just right. go through that way. Right. Um, but it, it's not. Yeah, they read it as if it's by itself. I mean, they yeah. and. I don't know how they can say that this guy in Romans 7, 14 to 25, whether it's Paul talking about his past life or just talking about a general sinner's coming to an understanding, how they can comport that with Romans 8 and Romans 6 and say Romans 7 is a Christian. Right. They really have to isolate it. They can't. Yeah. Even even Romans 7, 5, and 6. I mean. It says, for when we were in, when we were in the flesh, you know, which were aroused and were at work in our members, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died till we were held by, so we should walk, so we serve in the newness of the spirit. This guy isn't serving the spirit, Romans said. I mean, they, they really just start at verse 14, and they just go to verse 25, and they don't even, 
It seemed like they don't even really read verse 25 because Christ didn't deliver them. Didn't save them from the body of death. And the, uh, the revived verse 9, mm-hmm. I was once alive. Without the law, yeah. Yeah, the word there for revived is uh, anazao, and it means to be awakened after being dormant, to spring to life. Okay, so sin was dormant because he had no knowledge of the, of the law. So it, it's it's a person, I think verse 9 is a person coming to the state of accountability, realizing for the first time in their life, I'm a sinner. And there, he didn't get the right response, he kept on sinning. That's what we see. Some people, I think, take this as Mm-hmm. You know, it is something that is there in them mm-hmm. when the scripture says it's not that. Well, it, it is in them in the sense that they develop this law of sin. And children do it long before they come to the age of accountability. Even with the, uh, you know, disciplining them properly, raising them in the Word of God, they'll, they'll still do things they know they shouldn't be doing. You know, they know they shouldn't be playing around during church or something like that. They'll, they'll still do it anyway because they, they're developing a law of sin in their members. And I can discipline them for it and chastise them for it, but uh, it's their choice whether they're going to keep on doing it or not. Right. And so even then, they're developing this law of sin. But it's related to what they're doing. Right. That's the but it's still within them. But it's still, yeah. still within them. It's, it's practice they're developing over time. And not only that, I mean, sin does come from within us because sin comes from the heart. You know, so it's still within us, uh, and it has to do with the heart because the heart is choosing. It's the the seat of the will there, so it's choosing good or bad. Every time you're presented with a choice, am I going to do this? Or am I going to do this? I'm going to hit my sister on the head to get the toy back, or I'm going to ask it back for it nicely. Right, but it's not you know? like, uh, some kind of Z that's within that's making you. Right, right, and and they kind of, they think they're getting that picture from here, from this. But if they interpret the, if they go to the, the law of sin, which some of my members, they understand that properly. They understand uh, verse 5 properly, then they begin to understand what he's talking now, now, he is using sin in a noun form here. So he's personifying it to some degree, but it does not mean that sin all of a sudden is in our blood or whatever may, whatever people try to say, which is completely against the whole counsel of Scripture. So what they're doing, they're taking this this 12 verses here, and they're saying, well, this is what sin is. But they're discarding everything else about what sin is. Well, it really should be the other way around. Because remember, he's giving a, a history here of what happened. He's personifying, using a literary device or personification, to or to explain what happened to him in the past and how real sin became to him. It was so real to him that he, he can personify it. You see? No. Yeah. Uh, another thing about uh, creating this law of sin in their members, I mean, it doesn't necessarily uh, require knowledge to do that because someone could be uh, underneath. Uh, not having any knowledge of good or evil and not being to the state of accountability yet, but still be doing things that would be considered sin if they knew about it. Right. But they could still be doing things, and if they're allowed to continue to do those things, they could create a law of sin in their members before they know it's sure. sin. Sure, And they could then, then, then they have to break that later. So that's where yep. conditioning and discipline is important, even at the earliest age, mm-hmm. so that you can actually create good habits instead of bad habits. Yep. That when they come into the state of accountability, they won't be laden down with all these bad habits. Very active parenting. They'll just, 
they'll just right. head right into that right. sin. Right. That they've already been right. doing they didn't know it was a sin before. But they didn't have knowledge, right. and then they'll just head right into it. Right, because yeah. they've already got that, right. that law of sin they've already yeah, that makes sense. That's what There's a very active parenting that has to be going on. Yeah. Especially with something like uh, like lying. Probably one of the most prevalent things that young children like to engage in. Because a lot of times, let's face it, they get away with it. And so they begin to think in their mind, well, I've got away with it. I uh, didn't get caught for it. I didn't get punished for it. And I got away with it because I wanted this thing and I didn't want this thing. And, and so there's pleasure for them in it because they got what they wanted and didn't get caught. And so they think, oh, I'm going to keep on doing it. That's the way they're thinking. So they're developing this. And so I'm constantly keeping up on them and trying to catch them in their lies, if, if they are lying, and look for things that they might be doing and looking for, well, I see that she's acting this way, has this facial expression, this bio language, this tone of voice when she's lying. But when she's telling the truth is, you know, this, this is the way she is, or this is the way he is. And so you, you begin to notice, if you're an active parent, you begin to notice those things so you can make sure they're not developing this law of sin in their members. Because you want, you really want, like I said before, you really want to switch over from, from me being the Lord of them, so to speak, as the only one they understand and see, to Lord being the Lord of them. And if they're obeying me like they should, they're naturally, when they come to this understanding, they're going to say, okay, I need to submit to him now. Offer their members as instruments of righteousness at that point. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Exactly. The devil wants to destroy that training kids and stuff, so now like, oh, yeah. That's really a, a, a more of a Calvinistic view of children, that they have. You know, Calvinists view children as wicked sinners, so which implies they have understanding of what they're doing, and that's the same kind of view they're taking: is that they have they have the right understanding and knowledge to be able to make choices for themselves. No, children do not. They haven't been in the world long enough. They don't understand most things. Their their brain doesn't even. They think very concretely, instead of thinking, uh, you know, in a very. Uh, that's the word I'm looking for. Abstractly, thank you, brother. Abstractly, like you're supposed to. That's what you're supposed to come to. You know, they, they, if they talk, talk to my children about God, they'll say, well, he must be really, really tall. He must be the tallest person in the whole world. He must have big muscles. He must be really strong. That's what they think. They're thinking concretely. But when you think of God being strong, uh, and about him being mighty, you don't think about him being tall, or being heavy, or being strong, having big biceps or triceps. Because you've come to this understanding, age of understanding, where you begin to understand abstractly that that's not what it means. You know, when the Bible says God, you know, as a chicken guys her hen, or a hen got a chicken on her wings, so God wants to gather you on his wings. Well, you don't think God has wings now. You think it's talking about protection for you. Yeah, he doesn't really have a physical hand, you know, so, but children, they think that way. Very innocently think that way. That's the way God made them, and God made them to grow up this way for their purpose and for our purpose as their parents. It's beneficial for both sides. So. We sure do. We definitely learn through the process. For those that teach that children are 
just let them develop that in the members, they, you know, might as well just let them develop because then God's just going right. to save them. Right. Nothing you can, why, why, why parent in that philosophy? Why discipline? You're, 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 it's like, it's like a, knowing a dog cannot fly and, and kicking them all the time and telling them, fly dog, you better fly, you better fly, lay an egg dog, you know, and get a belt that and whip it a couple times. Because you know, you know, one day, magically it's gonna grow wings and start laying eggs. But dogs don't do that. They have no ability to do that. Now God could do that if he wanted to, but. Yeah, give a couple million years, yeah. But, you know, dogs don't lay eggs. They lay other things. They have to scoop up with a pooper scooper and put it somewhere else. Yeah. They don't grow wings. They don't fly. If they did, we'd be in trouble. We'd be able to put a fence around them and keep them in, right? Just fly over top of it.